Well, good morning, Grace family. Man, we're all together, and that was like half as loud as normal. What happened? Good morning. Amen. Hey, it's so, it's so great to be together again, uh, all together again. Amen? Amen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Keone Hughes, and I have the incredible honor and privilege of serving as a lead teaching pastor here at Grace Community Church. I love this church. I love you all. I hope you guys enjoyed third winter this last week. It was chilly. Um, but if after the service, if you're visiting with us as a guest, thank you so much for being here. As was mentioned at the beginning of the service, I just want to reiterate our Connect card. Uh, Pastor Tim did a wonderful job in introducing our service and welcoming you all. I also want to honor Pastor Tim, who will be leaving on a sabbatical for a little bit this summer. Can we thank God for Pastor Tim and his ministry here at Grace? Uh, Pastor Tim, for many of us, was the first friendly face that we met and who greeted us. Uh, I know that was my story, and that might be true of you as well. Uh, this morning, we have the incredible opportunity of continuing in our Heart of Grace series. When you're talking to someone and you really want to know what's going on in a, in a certain situation, you want to ask them, hey, I just want to hear your heart on this particular issue. Like, what's, what's going on in your heart? I know these are the things that you're doing, but what's going on in your heart? About 18 months ago, as I've mentioned throughout this series, the elders really started to pray and to ask God, what is it, God, that you have on your heart for our church? What is it that you want grace to accomplish, and where do you want to see us? And as we continued to pray and process and work through a couple of books, we looked at our vision statement. Where do we see God taking us in the future? And over the last few weeks, we've been walking through that vision and our mission, and we've unpacked two of the first kind of action steps, or the, or the two legs of a three-legged stool of accomplishing our mission. Our vision, we said, is to see Christ exalted in every heart, in every home in West Michigan and beyond. If you didn't have an opportunity to listen to that message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to where we see the, this trajectory in Scripture of Christ being exalted. Christ himself told uh, Nicodemus that he, as he was lifted up or exalted on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. And so we look back and we said, what is it, what does it look like to see Christ exalted in every heart and every home? And then we started to unpack our mission statement. And I just want to tell you guys how incredible it is that God pushed pause for one week before we stopped on an, our first mission of encounter. I actually was diagnosed with COVID-19, and for one week I was frustrated. God, why would you allow this to happen? Right when we start our vision series, you allow me to be taken out of the pulpit when my heart is so full to talk about your, your heart for our, our church. And yet in the providence of God and the timing of God, what, uh, what is going to be unpacked this morning would not have the kind of emphasis and clarity if God wouldn't have pushed pause for a week. And you're going to see that as this, as this unfolds. But the first place that we started in our mission statement was to encounter God. And we said that encountering God was recognizing his holiness, that we stand in judgment, and that as we encounter God in his word, we see ourselves clearly for who we are because we see him rightly for who he, who he is. And then we saw that God actually calls us to not only recognize his holiness, but also offers us redemption and mercy in our brokenness and our weakness and our rebellion. And so we believe that in order to see 
Christ exalted in every heart, every home, we have absolutely got to get people into God's word. We said that encountering God today means bringing people into the word of God, that we ourselves should be devouring the word of God, and that the word of God should be dwelling in us richly. And so that is our first mission step. What, what do we do? How are we supposed to get to a place where we see every heart exalting Christ? How do we do that? By encountering God on a daily basis. By encountering him corporately on a weekly basis and calling others to do the same. And then last week we actually unpacked our second step, which is to train the found. Uh, we don't need all of these frilly, gimmicky, smoke and lights Tricky statements. At the end of the day, your shepherds, we said last week, are called to equip you, to train you to do the work of ministry. And the challenge was for you to analyze what is the ministry that God is truly calling me to do. Because if we truly want to see every heart and every home exalting Christ, we can't do it alone. We can't be simply paid professionals. We're not Catholics. We're not, so, we're not priests who are sitting up here attempting to do your work of ministry. We're here to equip you, to train you for the work of ministry. We talked about the holistic areas, and the challenge was to say, is it my head, my heart, or my hands that have atrophied in my training? And the, the illustration we used was someone who was a bodybuilder, but they only worked out their upper body, and they had little chicken legs. And the idea was to really, really analyze where in my faith am I atrophied and weak? Do I overly focus on my heart, and I leave out loving God with all of my mind? Do people know that I'm compassionate and caring and kind, but they don't actually know the God that I serve because I never actually speak about him? And even if I were to open my mouth, I'm not sure what I would say. I had a young lady walk up to me after last week's message and said, Pastor Keone, thank you so much. I know that my neighbor knows that I love them, but I don't know if they know exactly why because I haven't had the boldness to speak to them the truth of the gospel. Those are the types of statements that mean the Spirit of God is percolating in our hearts, working within our hearts, we're called to train head, heart, and hands to be holistic followers of Jesus and to seek, seek those who are out of the eternal life of Christ. And that is our third mission step. Our third mission step, not only do we come to encounter God, not only do we come to be trained, but we come here that we might go out. And the third missional step that we're calling our body to is to seek the lost. Seek the lost. Encounter train, seek. You're going to see it written all over our hallways. You're going to hear our volunteer directors, our directors of ministry, our pastors are going to be using these three terms consistently to talk about how we do ministry here at Grace. Are you encountering God? Are you calling others to encounter God? Are you training head, heart, and hands holistically as a follower of Jesus? And are you seeking the lost? Are you seeking the lost? A few years ago, there was a New York Times article that came out where the columnist was writing about something that he coined a phrase on called siege mentality. He said that a siege mentality is the mentality that digs its heels in, puts its back against the wall, desires for walls to be built up all around them, higher fences, to make sure that the supply lines are just enough to sustain life inside. And he said that he saw this mentality developed all over America as we entrench ourselves and encamp ourselves in different ideologies. And the challenge for us this morning, as we look 
at what it means to seek the lost. The challenge for us this morning is to come to grips with the reality that the New Testament calls us to move from having a siege mentality into a seek mentality. From a siege mentality into a seek mentality. This morning, if you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Luke 19, verse 10. And as you make your way there, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's this word this morning. As is our custom here at Grace, we stand out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word, knowing that we submit fully to its authority in every matter of life and faith. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 is the touch point, the pivot point that comes as a life mission statement for Jesus. Here's what it says. Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. You may be seated. And as you find your seats, I'll invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you that your heart is for sinners. That you had designed it in your mind in eternity past that you would send your son to be one who seeks and saves those who are lost. And Jesus, we thank you for seeking us out in our sin and rebellion. Lord, whether we grew up as Pharisees believing all of the right answers in our head but never truly understanding it in our hearts, and you broke through our legalism and pride in order to bring us humbly to yourself in repentance. Or, Father, it's those of us who had lived outside of your will, not knowing about you or the truth, and had rebelled against you from our youth, and you sought us and saved us. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy in hunting us down as the hound of heaven. Spirit of God, I pray that you would fill and empower me now in order to speak clearly, truthfully, in accordance with your word, for the accomplishment of your will, for the edification of this body, for the expansion of your kingdom, that your glory may be seen in every heart and every home. That the expansion of your kingdom, Lord Jesus, would come because we understand your heart is to seek and to save. And it's in your name, Jesus, we all said. Really quickly, I want to go back and define once again for us encounter, train, and seek. For those of us who maybe haven't been present, maybe we caught one or two online, encountering God means this. We defined it as a God-initiated moment that brings transformation and redirection of life's purpose and mission. God-initiated moments that bring transformation and redirection of life's purpose and mission. And we saw this biblical theology or this trajectory, this narrative arc that moved from the Old Testament, and we saw in Genesis 3, from the Old Testament in Genesis 3 to Exodus 3 in the life of Moses, and you can follow that pattern not only in the patriarchs in Genesis, but also in the prophets of the Old Testament and as we saw in the New Testament, it took on a different shape and a different form in the life of Jesus. That, that the disciples and the world got to encounter God in the living flesh and the incarnate Son of God of Je in Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus did not leave us without hope. He left us his word. And as we continue throughout the New Testament, we saw that encountering God is word-driven. 
It is focusing in on the Word of God and having it build our lives to redirect and to reshape our lives' purpose and mission. Next, we said that training the found is defined as equipping followers of Christ to holistically walk with Jesus for service and building. And this morning, the definition that we're going to walk through is intentionally reaching those without Jesus, with the gospel of Jesus, for the expansion of his kingdom. Intentionally reaching those without Jesus, with the gospel of Jesus, for the expansion of his kingdom. You know what's amazing was as we sat and developed these, it was mind-blowing how these should not be mind-blowing for the church of Jesus Christ today. This is Christianity 101, that we encounter God, we come to live and lead like Jesus, and as we do so, we begin to seek those who are without Jesus. This is Christianity. And so we believe that as we come back to the essence of the heart of grace, we have an imperative of seeking that comes from the life of Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, in this idea this morning that we're going to talk about is challenging our siege mentality. Because I believe that in the church, especially in the evangelical church, we have learned far more to dig our heels in than to pick up our feet with the light of the gospel and go. And my desire is that we would be a church who doesn't hunker down, anticipating the worst of things, but that we would actually press in, in spite of the chaos and the warfare going on around us, whether it's literal warfare or it's continuous spiritual warfare, that we would actually seek the lost rather than hunker down. The church of Jesus Christ is trained and equipped not so that we're better looking, but for the intent and purpose of the fruitfulness of our lives, speaking to the lost so that they would see our character, they would see something within us that is far different than what they themselves have, and they would ask. Our training and our equipping is not just supposed to sit, it's supposed to be utilized on mission for Jesus. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at how there are two paradigms There are two paradigms, one from the Old Testament again, in how God sought. What was it like for for the Old Testament believer to seek? And we're going to see how the verse that we read in Luke 19 becomes the pivot point for understanding a new model in the New Testament. What is the old model of seeking? The Old Testament paradigm or model of seeking was a very outside-in model. There was inward inertia. So here's how it looked. Israel was saved out of slavery in Egypt. And as they were saved out of slavery in Egypt, God established them as a people group. And whether it was in the pillar of fire or the cloud that surrounded them, it moved into the tabernacle and then into the temple And Israel was constantly supposed to be a light unto the nations. And where do we see this? As as they walked with God, his presence was paramount in their lives. And in order for God to seek the world around them, the model that he used was to establish his name and his spirit's presence in a people group, in the people group of Israel. And in the tabernacle they saw it, in the temple they saw it. 
Exodus 30, verse 10. Exodus 30, verse 10 shows us how this inner inertia or this centripetal force that, that drove everything into the center of the tabernacle or to the temple was the model for seeking. Exodus 30.10 says this, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So here's what happened. Israel was caught up in captivity and slavery in Egypt. God sought them and he saved them. And as he brought them out, he established the Passover meal through the blood of the Passover lamb. That meal became the defining meal for what it meant to be Israelite. That if you practice and participated in the Passover meal, you were saying, I'm submitting myself to the God of Israel. God allowed Israel's identity to be formed around this specific meal. This is what made them Israelite. And God called them to ritually practice this, to remember what it was that he had done for them. So he gives specific instructions to Moses. Aaron, as the high priest, was to continually make this atoning sacrifice. And as they gathered together to remember this, they gathered at first the tabernacle, which was a moving tent. The presence of God was there. And then it became the temple, which was established in Jerusalem. And the presence of God was there. And they continually were called back to that meal, the Passover meal, which was a defining meal for them that made them the nation that God called them to be. But, but it wasn't just those of Hebrew descent. You see, Israel was actually called to be a light for the nations. Isaiah 42.6 makes this clear. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So God the Father, in seeking the lost in the Old Testament, would seek them, encounter them. They would recognize his holiness. They would stand in judgment, yet he would offer redemption. And we see this in the exodus of Israel. And we see continually how God is raising up Israel to be this light for the nations and saying that if any would come after him, they must go through the temple. They must enter in and participate in this worship. Israel was functioning as a light for the nations and standing and gathering people to come and worship the God of Israel. But if you were not an Israelite, how were you supposed to enter into this? How could you become a part of God's people? As an Old Testament model for seeking, everything was moving inward toward the tabernacle, toward the temple. That the surrounding nations were to know the God of Israel because of Israel's practice of the Passover. We see this in Exodus 12. Exodus 12, 48 says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it, that is the Passover. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So if you were a non-Jew, a non-Israelite, in order for you to actually worship the God of the Bible, what meal did you have to keep? The Passover. Because this meal was a defining moment of what it meant to actually receive 
receive from God this new identity of being an Israelite. This was the atoning work in the Old Testament model that all would come to Israel to see the glory of God, to be considered as part of the people of God. You shall not be a you shall not be any longer a sojourner, but shall be a native of the land. So the Old Testament model for missions was through remembering and celebrating the salvation of Israel, which formulated their identity as a nation. Any sojourner, stranger, representative of any other nation must become a convert, a proselyte, in order to become a true Israelite. And they did so by participating in the Passover meal. So if we, think about, if we think about how the Old Testament model worked, you can think about it almost like gravity. That there is a, a force in the core of the earth that is driving us down and holding us grounded. Everything is moving inward, toward that center, toward that core. But something pivotal happens in the life of Jesus Christ. Something incredible happens in the life of Jesus Christ. Whereas the cry in the Old Testament was, come and see, come and see. And worship the God of Israel. Something happens in the life of Jesus. And this is a new model of seeking. Jesus' life mission statement is what we just read. The Son of Man has come to seek and save. Seek and save the lost. Jesus gave his mission statement here. That he was born and that he came to seek and save the lost. One missiologist, Christopher J.H. Wright, argues that mission is not a topic that's found in the Bible nor is missions one aspect of outreach, or located overseas. He says that he used to look to the Bible for his missional basis, but now he actually sees mission as the basis for the Bible. Think about that for a second. Instead of looking to the Bible for the basis of missions, he actually sees missions as the basis for the Bible. Meaning, we would not know the God of Israel, we would not know the God of, of Jesus, we would not know the Father unless Jesus had actually spoken these words and God had been faithful to give us the Bible. And in the life of Jesus, we actually see the process that is happening where Jesus is coming into the world and he is beginning to see a shift in how the God of Israel is working in his mission. And it's through temple language that we see this shift. You see, Jesus actually teases out in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite who had known and understood the missional basis of being inward focused. The inertia was always moving inward in the Old Testament. Jesus understood this and yet he specifically called it out as missing the point. Missing the point. We see this in John chapter 2. Verses 19 through 22, Jesus answered them in talking about the temple. He says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. You see, in the Jews' mind, they still had the Old Testament model. They had the old model for seeking. The temple, the temple, the temple. It's the building, the building, the building. Anyone who wants... If we are the light to the nations, anyone who wants to come and know our God must come to the building. They have to come into the temple. And Jesus begins to rearticulate the heart of the Father in what he meant by seeking. 
And he begins to rearticulate this in really confusing people. Because he stops talking about the temple as a physical location and he begins to talk about it about himself. And he goes on to explain this. The Jews couldn't figure out or fathom how Jesus would rebuild a temple with the scope and the size of the temple that we were talking about. The Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And then we get an insight. It says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus does something. He begins to take the focus off of the building, and he puts it on himself as a person. He puts, he puts what had existed in the sacrificial system in the temple, and he says, this temple I will raise up in three days, meaning his body. Even his disciples at this moment didn't understand it. And you can picture in your mind for a second the setting. Jesus walks in to the temple. This is the first time we see this happening in in John. He had just performed a wedding in Cana of turning water into wine. He walks into the temple and he sees all of these people selling goods in the temple courtyard. And he's upset and he drives them out. And in in reaction to this, the religious leaders ask him, what gives you the authority to do that? Are you going to perform a miracle that shows us you have the right to do this? And Jesus says, the miracle I'm about to perform is going to shake the very foundations of the temple we're standing in. Because they misunderstood the purpose. Jesus was reorienting their minds and their hearts for understanding how badly their hands had mishandled his father's mission in the world. Remember, in their minds, they were thinking, come to the temple, come to the temple, it's all about the building. Jesus removes that and he says, I'm the building. The temple was about me. Jesus begins to reorient the inward inertia that Israel had been so focused on. Jesus was pointing to, and he revealed in his death, this cosmic shift in the dynamic model that Jesus was ushering forth, redefining in his life. In Matthew 27, 50 through 54, it says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook the rocks were split the tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised now think about this for a second this is a depiction and a description for us of Jesus's death so he just was talking about the temple being destroyed and here we have the exact point of this destruction of this temple and what happens in the literal physical temple that the Israelites had come to and worshipped at over and over. It says, in the temple, the curtain was torn in two. Something is happening here. And if we miss it, we can miss the point of seeking altogether. And we can get hung up. And so we got to understand what's going on in this passage and in this text. But, but, but follow along with me on the screens, if you will. It says, the earth shook, the rocks were split, tombs were opened, Bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were appear, appeared to many. 
when the centurion rose, when, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. It's the most obvious statement anyone's ever made. No way, dude. You think? Gives up his spirit, cries out to God. The centurion is standing around with other people. The earth quakes. Dead bodies come out of the tombs. And he goes, I think this, I think this was the dude. <laughs> what do I know? I'm only a Roman. But I think you guys missed him. I think you missed him. But the cosmic shift that was taking place and what God was doing in order to bring a light to the nations was totally missed on the Israelites. And as they completely missed the point of them being the people of God, they forgot what seeking was all about, which was to be a light to the nations. So God gives up his son, he offers up his son, and in the offering up of his son, and in Jesus' willing submission to the Father, the curtain was torn in two. What was this curtain? Remember, it's like keep your eye on the ball. Think about this for a second. It's like keep your eye on the ball. The ball was the Old Testament's presence of God. That's what we're all seeking is to be in the presence of God. David says to be in the presence of the Lord is, is, is better, just one day there is better than a thousand anywhere else. A thousand anywhere else. A picture of the most beautiful place you've ever been in this broken and fallen world. And David says you could be there for a thousand days. It doesn't even come close to being in the presence of God. And so the Old Testament model was the presence of God was manifested in the people of God. And then it became the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, there was a separate room which only the high priest could enter into. And it was separated by a curtain, by a veil. That only one person could enter in there in order to make an atoning sacrifice for the people of God. And then it became the temple. And in the temple, the same room with the same blueprint existed on an even grander scale. Only one priest would enter into the temple and yet, here's what happened when Jesus gave up his, his life. That presence of God was no longer mediated by one priest because Jesus was the ultimate high priest in saying, I have come that all might experience the presence of God. But the question is, then where do we now experience it? What happened to the temple? The physical temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. It didn't exist anymore. And you can imagine for the Jews, even the Jews today, thinking about the temple's destruction. Where would you find the presence of God? Where can we go to find the presence of God? Where can we go to make sacrifice? Here's what happened to the presence of God. The curtain was torn in two, symbolizing Christ had now unleashed the presence of the Spirit of God to not being inside of one building. And in Acts 2, we see where he sends his Spirit his presence. Acts 2, 1 through 4 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. Speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit of God and His presence now dwells within us. Within us. The Old Testament model that was focused on inward inertia is now having a beginning point that is like none other. There is no epicenter of Christianity that exists in one specific location any longer. Paul reinforces this idea in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, 16 through 17. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the temple. You are the temple. This pivotal shift is very important for us to understand. Paul, once again, says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here's the point. Missions in the Old Testament existed moving inward and had inward inertia. But now that that Jesus has given his life and given us his spirit, missions are now from everyone to everywhere. This is the point of the shift that happens. And here is the problem that I see happening within the church. We have gotten so used to a physical building and a physical location that we think the Spirit of God dwells in some temple-like way here. It doesn't. You could flatten this building tomorrow. We won't. But you could flatten this building tomorrow, and the Spirit of God will dwell as powerfully as it does in this moment as it will tomorrow in your heart. You're the temple. So why is the evangelical church so obsessed with carpet and lights and buildings and everything? You're the temple. You should be worried about adorning your heart with the love of Christ for others. How is the welcome mat of your heart? How is the lobby and the foyer of your love for your neighbor? You'd be more worried and more obsessed about what the lights and our, our program looks like than we are with what other people experience as they enter into our lives. Why? It's because we've got an Old Testament model in our minds. Somehow I just got to get people into the temple, a.k.a. a building. You're the temple. I'm the temple. If we want people to encounter God, they should, they should feel the love of Christ as they enter into our lives. There's a new model that Jesus gives us that we, each of us, are to be that light for the nations. The curtain was torn. We don't need to go back to the temple. You don't need me to intercede for you. You have a high priest who intercedes for you right now, every moment of every day. He hasn't stopped. And he's given you his spirit that you might seek the lost. If you have the heart of Christ and the mind of Christ, what is to stop you from seeking the lost even as Christ himself sought them? Earlier this week, I got this vision of having this renewed model for seeking. But here's the thing. I I spoke at the beginning of this message talking about how it was necessary for for us to have a one-week pause on this series. And at the time, I was like, no, there wasn't. 
it doesn't fit within my program. It doesn't fit with what we had a whole series and all the slides and the package and everything was lined up. We're ready to rock. It's totally inconvenient. Earlier this week, I got to attend a conference. Um, shout out to my pastor friend. Uh, not only Pastor Kyle went with me, but also Pastor Charles Kirby was in the house here as well. Got an opportunity to go to a church planning conference, Plant 616. That happened this week, Wednesday. You know what's amazing is Grace Community Church had been a church planting church. We had been. As a matter of fact, there's a church not too far away from here. There's two churches not too far away from here. We planted Jamestown Baptist Church. We were a church planting church. And we also planted Baldwin Street Baptist Church, which is now Chapel Point. We were a church planting church. The New Testament model, everyone to everywhere, you are a temple, and as you go, you would seek the lost, that Christ would actually be the one who elevates himself in your proclamation of Christ crucified alone. That's it. As you proclaim, you proclaim that the power is not in you, your eloquence or your ability, but in the spiritual reality that you're the temple who is simply putting all of the power where it belongs, which is on the gospel proclamation. That's it. That's it. And as you proclaim the gospel, you may fumble your way through it, trip your way through it, but it's Christ who will draw everyone to himself. That's what he says. That's what he says. That's your, that is a promise to you. It's like showing up for a sales pitch where the sale is already guaranteed. <laughs> you, you walk up, the sale's already in hand because Christ already paid for it and he's the one who's going to secure it. Are we, see, are we seeking the lost? The renewed model for seeking the lost, that grace that God has put on the hearts of the elders here at Grace Community Church is that we would enter into becoming a church planting church. That we would actually actively and intentionally reach the lost by becoming a church planting church. Why church planting? Why church planting? First of all, let me reframe the conversation. We are for one another. I am for you. I am for you. And we are also all for the gospel and the kingdom's advancement. But why should we plant churches? Why should we become a church planting church? Lifeway research has shown that 70% of churches are subtracting or declining or plateauing. Only 30% are adding or growing based on Lifeway research and exponential research. Lifeway research are all also showed that only 7% of churches are reproducing. 0% of churches that they, that they categorized uh, are churches that have produced multiple generational churches. Here's the bottom line. With the rate of reproduction of churches in America and the rate of growth of our population, we are vastly, vastly, underwhelmingly outgunned when it comes to churches. We're already behind the eight ball. We're already behind the curve. Lifeway research already showed that 
also showed that a majority of Protestant churches see less than one person per month commit to Jesus. Less than one person per month commit to Jesus. If we believe that God's New Testament model is that churches train up the found to seek the lost so the kingdom of God continues to expand by calling sinners to become saints. If we believe that, we gotta move from having a siege mentality to a seek mentality. We simply don't have time. Let me address some common myths that come up. Common pushback on church planting. Myth number one, planting will hurt the parent church. This is simply false. It is very, very seldom true. In fact, most parenting churches find a new season of vitality after parenting. Look, when you plant a church, you are intentional about engaging a particular people and it will cost you, even as being a parent costs you. But which one of you parents in here would forfeit the joy of seeing your child continue to grow and learn and mature? Which one of you would forsake that in order to simply be comfortably settled? Another common rebuttal was that's brought forward is planting hurts existing churches. That's not true. While new church plants in an area may raise the standard and quality of ministry and community, it may actually be challenging and iron sharpening iron to see other churches raised up in an area. Planting helps existing churches recapture their missional heart and missional edge in a community. New churches seek to reach the unchurched or dechurched. And in most common communities, it's well over half the population. Many more churches are needed in order to reach the lost. When we talk about seeking the lost, the most effective way to seek the lost, bar none, is to plant churches. It's to plant churches. Another myth that often is brought up is there's no room for another friend's church in our area. There's no room. Most new churches reach out to a completely different age, ethnic, or demographic group in those communities than existing churches do. Another myth, planting usually fails. Bad news. Some estimates say that four out of five new churches will fail and only one in ten sustain larger than 100 people. The good news, the success rates increase dramatically when the new church takes advantage of training and coaching by experienced church planters. We can't go it alone. We need others to link arms with if we are truly going to make a blip on the radar of seeking those who are lost. Another common objection is we're too small to church plant. Many small churches successfully help start new churches. When I think about this too small of a church, I, I'm, my mind is immediately drawn to the church in, of, of the Macedonians. The Macedonian church 
was the one who continually gave out of their poverty. They gave to see the mission advanced. Planting causes churches to break apart. That can happen in unhealthy churches. But if we have a true, strong, kingdom-oriented vision, parenting churches bless those who go forth to start new churches. New churches will replace existing churches. That's not true. And that's also not the goal. New churches often reach people who existing churches struggle to impact. Church planting causes a leadership drain. Not true. Earlier this week, I thought about, I thought about uh, this, this illustration. There's an elder at our church, Scott Mass, who is known for his zinnias in Zealand. So much so that when they were going to tear up his road, he went to a city council meeting, and one of the council members said, Scott Mass, I see you sitting back there. We're going to tear up the street, but your zinnias are fine. <laughs> we made sure of that. And here's the interesting fact about zinnias that he was telling me, that I think many of us who are in, entrenched and have our heels dug in in a siege mentality would be challenged to know. When you cut a zinnia, it splits and doubles. Did you know that? No, I didn't. And I thought, Scott, that's a perfect illustration. I was going to do something about love multiplying with babies, but didn't really want to go there, so... Zinnias it is. <laughs> when we capture a kingdom vision, and the reality is if you read the New Testament, you see it's hard. You see it's difficult, it's uncomfortable. When I was talking with one of my brothers earlier this week about church planting, I told him I was pastoring a suburban church. He said, ooh, yeah, baby. That's hard, man. He's like... Family, sports, comfort. Those are your main idols. I was like, do you know me? You're talking about my church? You're talking about me. <laughs> and yet, as we look at the Bible and the New Testament's paradigm, I'm pretty sure Jesus asked early in his ministry for anyone who would come after him to count the cost of discipleship. Have we forgotten what it should be costing us? Comfort and convenience, trimmed budgets out of our personal expenses. The people who were seeking the lost in the early church weren't thinking about their budgets or spending. They were thinking about their lives being sacrificed for the sake of mission. What happened to us? You know, a couple of weeks ago, my wife met a Jordanian missionary, not a missionary from Grand Rapids to Jordan, from Jordan to Grand Rapids, where Muslim-majority countries are now sending Christians to reach the unlost in our neighborhoods. I remember at Moody, a speaker who came from the 1040 window who said most Muslims won't listen to Christians talk about their God because they see how little they've sacrificed to reach them. They're worried for their lives. And Muslims don't respect that. What does it take to give us a heart to seek the lost? 
rather than entrenching ourselves in ideologies that are more based in conservatism than in Christianity. The lost need to hear the gospel. The last myth is America is overchurched. And this one I hear in particular about this area. Here's a quote I'd like you to consider for a second. There's too many churches in that city. Not Jesus. <laughs> when we think about living in a way that sacrifices... I think about the pushback that we've had from the little changes in our methods and our models. And it causes me to wonder, what are we actually here doing? What are we doing? Have we so lost sight of the goal because we're inconvenienced? So I'm going to bring up this question as we gather in one service. Why two services? Why two services? First, I'm going to address the theology of it. This is the, my second sermon for the morning. I've been used to preaching two services, so here you go. There are two books for anyone who would like to further uncover uh, and read about something I walked the elders through. There's one called One Assembly. One Assembly. It's written by Jonathan Lehman. And there's another one called Multichurch written by Greg Allison and Brad House. And in it, um, there is a theological debate that takes place. Jonathan Lehman, in one assembly, argues that to have an additional service, a second site or a campus, and to call yourself a church, is to, quote, morally reshape the church and pick a fight with Jesus. He grounds his argument in the specific word ecclesia. Ecclesia is a New Testament word that means assembly. It is commonly referred to as church, gathering. Ecclesia, he argues, only means one body gathered at one time. It is literally translated as assembly. And he states the multi-site, multi-service church, churches repudiate the Bible's definition of a church, redefine what a church is, and so reshape the church morally, and all that means these models pick a fight with Jesus. The problem with that is Acts 9.31. In Acts 9.31, we read, so the church, singular church, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. It multiplied. Paul uses a singular word to refer to multiple churches in a region. And the fact is that the New Testament letters were written to a singularly described regional church that was composed, com comprised of many churches that gathered in that area. Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians. 
So to suggest that there was only one normative pattern for the shape and the gathering of the New Testament church is overstated and absolutely and unequivocally falls into the category of preference and it becomes a liberty issue. So I want to just state this gently. If we want to be effective at reaching the lost, we have to sincerely analyze our preferential, consumeristic mentalities about how we gather in the light of Scripture if we are to be effective as a church at training up the found to seek the lost. To services, to campuses, it's not unbiblical. To have one gathering of people during one time is not more biblical. It's a preference. It's a preference. If we want to give in a life, if we want to live in a pattern of seeking, if we are continually seeking the lost and engaging them and proclaiming the truth of the gospel over them, we ought to see multiplication. Healthy churches are churches that see Christ exalted in every heart and every home because they are filled with individuals that are a light to the nations because they are the temple. And as they go about their lives, they are constantly calling others in to experience the presence of God. And as they encounter, they draw others to also be trained and sent as well. This is Christianity. This is what it means to be a little Christ. To bring others to encounter God, to train your disciples, and to seek those who are lost with the gospel as well. I remember being in a capture the flag game one time. And the captain of our team was sitting and he was waiting. And there was a long, drawn-out pitch, uh, uh, like a soccer field area. And right in the center line, there were all of these, there were all of these flower, uh, they were uh, pantyhose filled with flour, socks filled with flour. And if you grab those, you could hit someone else and they'd get out. It was great. Welcome to Bible college. And as we stood on the back lines and everybody's getting ready for the horn to blow, we're all looking at the center line. And we're all fixated on getting those pantyhose filled with flour so we could hit other people. It's weird. <laughs> and as soon as the horn blew, everybody rushed forward. But the captain of our team made a beeline past everyone. I thought, we're going to lose. He made a beeline past everyone. He got all the way to their flag before any of them any of them, any of them had even picked up a single one. By the time they turned around, he was more than halfway back, and we were almost ready, to, and they hit him. Because he kept his eye on the ultimate goal, he was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of our team. Where are we actually seeking? Are we living lives that are focused not on the things that are right in front of us, but on the ultimate goal? And are we willing to sacrifice our lives in order to go? Because we're seeing the goal and not being caught up by the trivial things in front of us. Grace, that is my heart for our church, that we would all be men and women, teens and elderly, that we all would be saints who are so trained that we keep our eyes on the goal and we run with reckless abandon, not worrying about what happens to us or our lives. I'm willing to risk it all. 
And the call of the New Testament is to die for yourself so the kingdom can be expanded. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for loving us to the point of no return where you gave your only son. You gave your only son. And Lord Jesus, we want to pattern ourselves after you, our Savior, our King, our Lord, the one who commands our life. The author of our faith, we want to pattern ourselves after you. And so, Lord, I just pray that we each as we enter this week, we would be thinking about whether we have a siege mentality or a seek mentality because we have the heart of Christ. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing here at Grace Community Church, and we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would would cut short the plans of the enemy, that you would rip out division and strife, that you would bring to us the found that we might be faithful to train so that we may seek. And Lord, I pray for those of us, Lord, who have been caught up, even as I have, Lord, in materialism, getting tripped up on things that are absolutely trivial. Forgive us, Jesus. Help our eyes to fix our eyes on you and the goal of seeking those who are lost. In your name we pray, amen.